this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Film Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Abrams, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Craig Oldham about his new book, The Shining, A Visual and Cultural Haunting. Craig Oldham has been named as one of the most influential designers working in the UK and has written books on a range of topics, including education, culture and politics. He is the concept and series editor of Epiphany Editions, the first of which, They Live, A Visual and Cultural Awakening, was published in January 2019. He is also Rough Trade Books Creative Director. Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, mate. Oh, my pleasure. Um, Craig, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Of course. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, as even though I have written a lot of books and we're on a kind of book, book channel, um, I cut my teeth in graphic designing, which is what I kind of do largely to uh, earn my crust. Um, and we, I run a, a design agency called Officer Craig. We work largely in publishing, in exhibition design, uh, but I am also... Creative director of Rough Trade Books, as you said, uh, running pretty much everything that comes out of the house, really. Um, and I've been doing that for about 15 years or so. And, but books have always been a massive passion of mine. Reading them, designing them, making them, smelling them, if I'm honest. I always love the smell of a good book. And uh, that's kind of led me down a path of quite serendipitously, really, where I get to do what I do now, which is write books, um, design books, and sort of publish books, I guess. Yeah, it sounds, <laughs> sounds like some kind of kink, but I know what you mean. There's a certain type of cardboard, um, our cinema prints on it, and it has that, that fresh kind of cut card smell. I always call it uh, your grand's attic. If a book smells like your grand's attic, it's a good thing. It's a very, very good thing. It's a big tick in the box. Eh? That sounds like a future series. Um, grand's attic, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, scented books is something we've definitely explored. I mean, the, the book you mentioned there, Leif, we uh, printed that with bubblegum uh, scented ink from the line in the film where it says, I've come to, 
I've come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, so that's why that smells like bubblegum. So it's, it's not too far off of practice, <laughs> practicing what you preach. Oh, great. Um, well, that leads me naturally to segue into, um, you edited The Shining of Visual and Cultural Haunting. Um, I was going to ask you, how did you come to edit that? I'll ask you that after this question, which is, if that book was to smell, what would it smell of? Oh, dear. What would that smell of? Um, terror, fear, which, you know, could be something else, I guess, if you can tell, you can smell fear. But, um, yeah, uh, it would. It probably would smell of lots of different things, really. Um, whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Daniels, yeah. Jack Daniels, yeah. I have to say that this is the first time I've ever asked that question uh, <laughs> to anybody ever. Um, so back to the book. Um, how did you come to edit it? So uh, the long, the long story really is: I had an idea for a series of books called the Epiphany Editions, um, although they weren't called that at the time. I had it. I had no idea what they were called. Just had this kind of embryonic idea that wouldn't it be an interesting exercise to take books that don't exist that that live in in films and in their world of the film and take them out of that world and and make them for real and i thought that would be a really interesting idea to have these artifacts obviously i love the visual culture of film but i also love the kind of impact and the the kind of myriad of creative <clears throat> practitioners and kind of disciplines that all have to feed in to a film to make a project come alive. And I think books and print and obviously production design are a big part of that. So having one of these things in my hands, I thought would be a really interesting thing, but not wanting to be superfluous about it, not wanting to just create something, you know, sweetie for the sweet shop and it had be, you know, very little of substance. I really want to dig into those ideas of the cultural ripples that films have you know, all of that stuff that leads into the making of the film, all the influences they draw on, all the stories that they draw on, all the kind of the societal, um, kind of what's going on in society around the time that the film is being thought of and, and creatively shaped. Then it's made and then it goes out into the world and another thing happens that you can't really anticipate where the film, you know, grows a life of its own uh, and it ceases to become kind of, the director's vision or the writer's vision or whatever and, and it's taken sort of hostage by the public and it becomes their film and what happens then you know the cultural impact that these things have the things that people become influenced by them so that kind of those kind of, that kind of circular overlap really interested me and that's kind of led me to okay let's make these books that don't exist for real and let's fill them with all that kind of critique and examination of what led up to them and what what came after them so I've had an idea and I sort of started drawing a shortlist and it's like one of those things that you can't really get away from. Once you have, once you see one and you think, oh, there's a book in a film, suddenly they're everywhere. It might not seem so obvious, but honestly, there are so many, particularly in sort of science fiction and horror, it's a bit of a trope, but I just started making a shortlist. And when this idea started to get a bit more serious, when uh, Nina Hervey, my partner at Rough Trade, said, this is interesting, we're interested in it, let's publish it. Um, we thought, well, let's give it a go. And it wasn't that I wanted to do They Live First, even though I love the film and I'm a big, big John Carpenter fan. Uh, that there was just one that organically happened first. People said yes, quick. Um, things just sort of fell into place quick. 
and that became the first film and the shining after the success of they live we wanted to you wanted to sort of start to escalate that and i just thought the shining would be great to do because of the kind of the artifact itself within the film it isn't technically a book i guess it's a manuscript um but its production design and the way it's made is very different to what I, what you would classify as a book and i thought that would be really interesting to do but never in a million years that i think we'd be able to get it off the ground just because of the complexities of the film itself that you know the ownership of the film we also always really want to involve the directors in these things john carpenter wrote the foreword for they live and he was inspirational both in our research and also just speaking to the man for his vision but of course sadly stanley kubrick's not with us to sort of partake in that stanley kubrick is is isn't there to sort of write forward for it. so it presented instantly different challenges to the format that we were taking with these things so we sort of paused it and we were on and off and then covid happened and it felt like well if you're gonna be in isolation with your family uh, or, or by yourself and you're gonna have to work on something the shining felt like a pretty apt uh, film to start thinking about really considering that we were in that world considering that we were experiencing isolation a lot of us you know, in a serious kind of sense for the first time in our lives and what that does to us, it felt like lots of things could use that as a springboard to discuss the film and give it a new light. Because obviously, well, not obviously, but there has been so much written about all of Stanley Kubrick's films, not just The Shine, but The Shine in particular has its own very, very interesting corner of the internet, very, very interesting corner of the world of film criticism. And we wanted to look at that with fresh eyes, really. Something you just said just sort of um, piqued my interest there, um, in that, I mean, it's over 40 years old now, the film, and, um, you know, there's not only does each generation reinterpret anew, we we interpret it anew as we grow older, and, and our life experiences changes, so I'll just come out and say it, since I've become a dad, um, well, it's been 10 years now, my view on the films changed completely. I won't say in what direction because it makes me sound terrible, but um, I like what you're saying earlier that we're now going to rethink of The Shining in the post-COVID era. You know, we've all experienced our own lockdowns. Do we empathise with Jack? <laughs> or do well, we dislike I mean, him more? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I always... It was interesting to me, and we, and we discussed this a little bit in one of the essays in the film, where... Um, it's kind of the, the, the from whose point of view do you experience the film? You know, from the three kind of feature main characters within the film itself. You know, Jack, Wendy, and Danny. From which point of view you you kind of experience that film? I think does. I mean, naturally, it, it seems to me it skews how you interpret it and what you then take from it, and what it means to you, and what how all those things add up. And for me, I, you know, I was I grew up. The Shining, you know, I was born in 85, so The Shining would have been out five years by then. I think I probably saw a lot more of the cultural spoof of The Shining before I actually watched The Shining itself as a film. You know, I remember The Simpsons ripping it off in one of their Treehouse of Horrors episodes, and I remember lots of people using it in various ways. And you sort of almost jigsaw the film together before you've actually seen it in some instances. It's that popular. And I think that itself alters how you look at the film, knowing 
when things are coming and what things happen and you know that we can talk about is it a scary film at all you know later probably but I always viewed it from Danny's point of view being probably being closer to that person's age and it terrified me you know my mum and dad divorced when I was about eight or nine years old watching The Shining and watching his mum and dad fight bicker break up his dad being a kind of really oppressive patriarch but also not being very, very comfortable with his masculinity and, and his power in that kind of structure. He's, he himself is oppressed by other men. I think it's, it, 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 you, you change that dynamic as you watch and it is very strange. And then of course, <clears throat> COVID, you experience things differently. Do you empathise with Jack a bit more? I don't personally know. I think I understand it a little bit more, but um I, I don't empathise with him as much as a meme culture might want you to sort of say, oh, I see why this was going going off in the shining. Um, but, yeah, it brought, brought a lot out, I think, COVID. And I think, it, you know, as you say, films, they become properties of generations and they mean different things. And I think that's a, that's a testament to Stanley Kubrick's success in that he made a film in the shining that, operates much like a vessel into which every generation pours their own experiences and backgrounds and belief systems and principles into it and it still retains a relevance to them because of the way it's kind of made uh, and because of the structure it has and I think that's really interesting. Yeah I'm going to come back to that um, or maybe I should ask now but I do want to discuss the actual how that how so you could describe how the product looks um, for, for a podcast audience. So, um, do you, do you want to just sort of describe, um, you know, you said earlier this isn't a book in a conventional sense. Um, it's more of an artefact. Would you like to just sort of give a rough description, um, a rough trade description of um, of how it looks? <laughs> yeah, so it's... <clears throat> calling it a book feels a little bit grand. Calling it an, art, calling it an artefact feels even more <laughs> grand. But... Um, I do struggle with the terminology for what this is because ultimately there's no binding within it whatsoever. Uh, it comes in a box. It's very loose leaf and it has no kind of logical order or structure to it in that sense. So it is a, an object um, as anything. It's a, it's a printed, it's a piece of printed matter. <clears throat> Excuse me. And how that kind of came to be as with all of the Epiphany editions, the, uh, the ones that haven't been made yet or the ones that will be made, they take all of their kind of DNA from what we see on screen. So when you see Jack typing at the various moments throughout the film, looking in his in your kind of peripheral vision off, off the centre of the screen, you will see this sort of book, uh, book box thing, this box of typewriter paper, basically, script paper with the, the kind of the short edge of the box has been ripped down so you can pull sheets in and out quite easily. It's a very functional thing. Sometimes you see parts of the lid, but we don't really get a really good glimpse of it until Wendy is strolling around with the baseball bat, terrified, looking for Jack when she comes across the actual manuscripts and of course that famous scene of seeing he's written endless iterations of all work no play it's Jack a Dull Boy. So that was the large kind of DNA. Those were the ingredients that we had to play with. So naturally, and I also went to the Cubic Archive uh, and looked at the actual prop itself and took a lot of, spent a lot of time with it, uh, leafing through the pages, looking at the layouts, 
getting an idea of the stock, you know, looking at the brand that the box came in and all of that kind of stuff. So we took that as our kind of starting point, really, as our inspiration and made a box for ourselves. The the replica part of, again, replica is quite a grand word, but the kind of the reimagining of Jack's manuscript, what you see on screen is what you get at the top of the box. And then from there, we take the film as a kind of visual source code that then makes all these other elements and all these other elements being we ask uh, people from different kind of cultural practices and disciplines to give their kind of view on what the shining means to them through their experiences through their kind of viewings of it and equally people that were involved in the film itself um what their thoughts are shy Duval wrote a piece Derek Lloyd wrote a piece um, uh, Margaret Howell, who designed Jack's uh, corduroy jacket, which he sort of wears towards the latter third of the film, the third act as were, uh, discussed how that came to be. So there's a real kind of tapas <laughs> involved in this. There's different kinds of content at different kinds of stages, and it's up to you as a as a as a reader to decide how and when you want to digest these things. Um, you can. It is designed in a way and written in a way that if you drop this thing and it went all over the floor and then you pulled it back together, that you could still make some sort of logical sense from it. And I wanted people to sort of, I, I wanted people to experience it that way. I wanted people to read it in single form or come back to it and revisit it. And, and, and in a way, I wanted to conceptually pick up on what my, what I think is the, a great quality in the film in that it kind of operates as a space for people to do that with the film itself. It's more like a matrix, as in a system of things, not Neo and everybody else and his, you know, Mary Band and Butts Black Sunglasses. But um, it operates as a kind of a, a, a room or a space in which you can sort of add your own furniture and furnishings and, and reassemble what's in there to create your own kind of vision for it. And I wanted the book to be like that. So it's designed so people can take stuff out, add stuff in, move the order of stuff, change the way that they view it in order to sort of make their own meaning from it. And I think that was why it was such an interesting project to be involved in, because obviously that, as grand as it sounds, does present its own challenges from a writing point of view, production point of view, certainly, and a design point of view. So that's kind of why it looks the way it looks. It's um, a lot of typewriter pages in there, which are my kind of essays on things. And then we use the kind of black... Uh, title cards, intertitle cards, and they're using the film as a bit of a cue for cultural contributors. We use the blue kind of title sequence that rolls up the wrong, wrong not wrong way, it rolls up uh, obliquely. Um, for sort of image book holdings, there's bits of scrapbook in there, which again is a peripheral and on Jack's desk when you see it, but bringing in all these different materials and all these different textures so that it becomes a sensory experience, much like I think the reading of the film is when you, when you watch it and when you try to start to ask questions of it. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I think it's a beautiful thing to own. I know that's not the entire point of it, but as as books go, especially in a marketplace uh, for Kubrick stuff, which is, I wouldn't say crowded, but, you know, obviously Tashin produces its editions and they have their different way of, of binding and publishing um, their books within a book. This, you know, and, and one's just coming out on The Shining um, at the same time as this one. Yours feels very different and, like, amazing that no one has done it before like why why aren't all books on the shining jack's uh, manuscript or the scrapbook you know so um i, th- I so, think if they tried it they would find out why 
I mean, you've done you've done very well to produce something that you know. I'm, you know, there's been quite a few books on The Shining in particular. Um, it's probably, I'd say, probably one of the most investigated of, of Kubrick's movies. Um, which leads me on to the thing I wanted to pick up on that you said earlier about how this film sort of survives and gives a, um, how do you say, sort of empty vessel or, or a vessel for people, different generations to kind of pour their fan, you know, fancies or fears on to project them. Is one of the reasons um, the kind of all the pre-production research that Kubrick did, some of which you featured in your in your in this book. You know the essays he read, the the, the academic research he did. Um, do, do you want to talk about some of the essays that you included? H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't, I can't speak to Kubrick's approach to this. I can't speak to what he had in his mind and whether he was aiming to create something intentionally or otherwise it was like that uh, or that operated in that manner um, or you know or, or even any kind of approach that he would take he's uh, I think anyone not even the most kind of I don't know inclusive in, in his circle that can speak about it can never speak for him so I'm always very conscious of that that this is all of this stuff is people's opinions and no matter how well researched things are, ultimately you draw your own conclusion on those things. But for me, um, I was really interested in the stuff that he read because it, it, it allowed allowed me really to sort of see it kind of to see my sights and see my kind of influences. So when he read the uncanny or unheimlich the piece it's quite a famous but short piece actually by Freud um, about how things about that, that notion of things being uncanny as a kind of a concept a philosophical concept but also the origins of fear and also Lovecraft uh, Lovecraft's essay uh, on which is about literature not about films naturally but the way that he talks about similar things and echoes similar motifs of the unknown and the, these ideas of things being what we see, but being then betrayed by our own senses and our own real solidity of reality to then be turned in, in the most simplest of instance into something else. You know, the, the sort of what's beyond the corner, you know, Lovecraft and his architectural stuff was all very interesting corners, not corridors, which was what Kubrick picked up on in The Shining. But this, this, this is the same kind of thing this kind of unknown, these joins or these things that lead into something else. We don't know what's behind the door and that frightens us. We don't know what might be in this join, what could come through this, this kind of weak weak spot in the adjoining of two solid things. It's frightening. So th those kinds of things really did, did excite me really. And I always, again, but it wasn't about saying, look, he read this, therefore he meant that. It's much more about, we know he read this, what does that make you think? Um, that was kind of what we wanted to do with it, rather than me kind of force my agenda or force my taste or force my opinions onto a reader. It was more, look, here's some stuff that he read or here's some stuff that he mentioned and tried to articulate how he, what he thought of Stephen King's work and what how he then adapted that. You know, The Blue Hotel, which is a novel by Stephen Crane. Again, well, it's a short story, uh, and despite its title, it has very little to do with the hotel other than it's the kind of the platform for the whole story to kick off. And 
Kubrick talks a lot about that in his interviews when he was trying to kind of explain Jack's motives or trying to explain how he tried to keep people guessing until the absolute moment where he had to sort of give away a bit more information, I guess. And that, that whole novel is very much set on the premise of someone feels they're being cheated and everyone else thinks that they're being stupid. And of course, a person like that would end up having a gunfight fatally. So all of these things for me are just really interesting because I, I just think it's interesting that they were that they were read by him or, or they were talked about by him and therefore they must have been in his mind somewhere but it's about presenting that in a way that people can just have them in their minds as well and then watch the film or read the book or whatever or all of those things and then go okay what do I think of that what do I make of those things what within the uncanny do I feel is in the shining what what you know it's about correlating all those references, but it's not just about what Kubrick read either. It's about all the things that were out at the time or that echoed, you know, from certainly from film, what other films use, a lot of the motifs in the shiny way, whether Kubrick lifted those, borrowed those, or they just happened by chance. I'm, I'm, I'm actually less interested in and more about just throwing them under people's nose to say, well, what do you think about the Amityville horror? The fact that he uses an axe, the fact that he's the dam, the fact that he's the house that's possessed us manipulating things how do you feel about that you know and there's lots of these kinds of threads that i just want i didn't necessarily want to pull in order to form an argument it was more like pulling them so they could be presented to people for them to make their own argument from it when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply yeah, it's much like how Kubrick made his film. I suppose what I was trying to suggest in, in, in my question wasn't um, what did you think Kubrick was trying to say. It was more that all that underpinning research and um, those similarities to the other films of the era and the artwork that you pulled together that, that predates the f- um, film. More that because of all that research around the film, that's what's made it last, that it's a deeper movie. It's not just a simple ghost story as his brother-in-law, Jan Harlan, described it, but it's you know when you pour that research into it, um, regardless of what we think Kubrick meant, it gives us more room for interpretation. It's richer as a horror film, you know, and and as much an influence horror since. So Jordan Peele can make two movies. Um, I haven't seen the third yet. You know, um, um, Get Out and Us heavily influenced by The Shining in particular. Um, so that, you know, forty years later, in a very different context by a very different filmmaker, he sees resonances in in, in Kubrick's film. Um, possibly as a product of all that research, um, that I suppose that's what I was trying. What I was trying to suggest with the question. No, no that's, that's, that's absolutely right, and I think it's it, for me. It's, it's just good practice. Um, you know, if you if you're going to be approaching a subject or, or or a certain level of content, then you do your research. You find out about things, and you look into things a little deeper. And it's a kind. Of, it's a. It's the the old kind of dig deeper, rise higher kind of adage, isn't it, in terms of how these things go and how they will last. And if, if there are answers for everything, that becomes infinitely more interesting to people who've got questions. And, and if sometimes if the answers are a bit more frivolous or 
superfluous and it's like, oh, it just looked right, then then become, this seems to become less interesting. And I think there is a bit of a cult of Kubrick that, that wraps around that, rightly or wrongly, where people think he can't make any mistakes or nothing was by chance or every single millimetre of the set was authorised and designed by him. And I think that's unrealistic, but that cult and that kind of mythology around the, the, the kind of the master director idea does also propel this thing a little bit forward into time because people still have a lot of room to debate that the person and his film, you know, the director and his work. Um, and I think that is really interesting as well. No, indeed. I love that you used um, the term the cult of Kubrick. Um, I'll just segue a little bit into, into I've written about Kubrick as, um, um, I call it Kubrickology, and that indeed there is this kind of cult around him. And I've compared it to sort of Talmudic scholarship um, where where the the intentionality of the creator is likened to that of God. There are no mistakes. And if there is a mistake, there's a reason why it's in there. And it leads to these um, very detailed, granular discussions of, of minute detail. You know, why does the set look like it looks like? Why did he use that set of numbers? Um Etc. Etc. You know, why is the why the uh, that carpet design, and um, I, I like that analogy. So that that there's very few directors I think we can say that about has grown up around this kind of um, cultists who who, tr- who who explore the minute details, particularly of The Shining, um, but they also do it with the other one, 2001, the um, Ice Shut, um, to come up with some theories. On that note. Um, you said earlier you went to some interesting places on the internet. Do you have a favourite theory that you've come across? Oh, I don't know. Some of them are all they're bonkers, aren't they? And but I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very, even though I've just used that word, um, I am cautious not to dismiss these things because I don't think anyone, no matter how scholared or read or kind of educationally awarded someone is. I don't feel that they have a more valid opinion than another person on what a film means because I think it's a personal thing and I think a film can mean anything you want it to mean um, to yourself. So when someone, for example, believes it's, it's you know, about mental illness and that there's, not, there's no ghosts in it, then that's, I don't think that's an invalid thing and I don't think, you know, all this Illuminati stuff or, Holocaust readings or Native American indigenous populations of America's um, readings that come out or the fact that it's, we're all inside Shelley's head or we're all inside Danny's head or whatever the, whatever these reasons are, I think they're all validly really interesting. I think even by the sheer amount of them, they are interesting and they can't be dismissed by the weight of them alone. The fact that the film does that to people or instigates or inspires these thoughts within them is it gives it validity for me. And um, I haven't really got a favourite. I think some of them are just kind of really imaginative and really kind of just just mind-bendingly conceptual. And I really like that. I really like that it does that to people. I love that people still have the, still have the reaction to films that way. Um, but... I mean, just, you know, the, the documentary, Room 237, um, Rodney Ashes, there's something that, I, I always describe my experience watching that film. The first sort of 40 minutes, I'm, I was literally like, wow, what is this? You know, on the edge of my seat thinking, this is really interesting. And then the last 20 minutes, it all 
crumbles and you just think this is absolute shit <laughs> what is what is being discussed here um and I, i'm being you know i'm joking about that but it does feel that way and you do the more you read about it the more kind of paralyzed you become in your own understanding of it and i think that's quite interesting as well but it does that to you it's just it's just the thing i love isn't isn't what people come from it it's the fact that it does that to people I think that's the thing I find really interesting, the fact that it is this kind of very strange, almost, I think catalyst would be the right word because in, a, in an experiment, catalyst doesn't lose itself, you know, it stays, it remains in its own state. And I think the shining doesn't change, but it does. what changes is what it does to people. And I think that's really, really interesting. <laughs> and sometimes really funny, but other times really, really great. And, it, you know, you mentioned Jordan Peele's work, which is fantastic. But that that that's one of those things that spun off, as you said. You know, it's, it's a, the shine is a referential point within, particularly within us. You know, so that that long may that continue, and long may that other films do that to people uh, if they built them in a similar way, or if they look, even if they look to Kubrick or not, that they just find their own ways of doing that. Because I think it's an amazing thing, an amazing quality. It doesn't really happen in many other art forms other than film. I'm just going to, um, I take everything you've said, I'm just going to float some of my, um, one of my favourites and then a couple of mine. Um, and you can react, you can react to it how you want. Uh, so one of my favourite theories is The Shining is the book that Jack is writing in the movie. Um, I haven't really explored that, but I do like that idea. Um, my personal take on it is that um, you said it was inside Jack and Wendy's head. I think it's all inside Jack's head. That's why we got that long opening shot, three minutes, that little journey. Um, like any road movie in the United States, it's not really about travelling down a road, you know, like Easy Rider or Apocalypse Now, which came out the year before, which heavily influenced Kubrick. It's it's about a kind of psychic journey. And I think that's why Jack knows what's around every corner and he's always been a caretaker. And it doesn't matter whether the hotel makes sense because obviously it's a set, but that aside, it's all in his head. So, so for me, this film is really autobiographical on Kubrick's part. You know, he kept the name of Jack, which is the name of his dad, um, and the dad who tries to murder his son. And for me, it's Kubrick's take on in this autobiographical mode and Freudian mode on Genesis 22, which is um, when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac. Um, you know, an unseen power orders him to kill his only son, whom he loves. You know, there's that scene of Jack hugging Danny, saying, you know, I wouldn't hurt, her, wouldn't hurt you, you know that, don't you, Danny? And you're totally thinking you, you would, or what you have done. And for me, it's it's like Kubrick's contribution, intentionally or otherwise, to that age-old problem of obedience to authority. If if God orders you to kill your only son, do you do it? And obviously Abraham didn't in the end, but it's a foundational text for the th you know, three major monotheistic religions. And when he raises that knife to his son, is he's good as killed him. Because as I like to tell my students, when they walk down that mountain together, going to be a bit of an awkward conversation. <laughs> you know, Dad... You had the knife. <laughs> um, so, so you know, and you see that a lot of father-son tension in the film. And um, um, so that those are my theories um, on, on, on The Shining. I'll let you react to that how you want. And, well, <laughs> how, how do you react to that? Other than saying you're not wrong. <laughs> you could have no, put me into right, the... <laughs> no, no, you know, you're not wrong. It's... It, there's a lot of that, I think, you know, but again, it's, we're, we're, it's all guesswork. It's all our own 
interpretation as to whether that was the intention of the Daleks or not, and whether that even matters, I guess. But the, the father-son stuff is quite interesting, and I think what you're saying there, you know, whether he managed to carry that out or not, the decision had been made, hadn't it? So that, that, that in itself is kind of terrifying. Um, you know, we look, we looked in the book and we picked up a lot of the kind of Saturn eating his son, you know, and that kind of stuff, which is all, you know, it's the same song with a different name, really. Yeah, um, Kronos as well. So it's, it's all in there, but they're the ingredients, aren't they? And it's like, what meal we make in it? Um, but I do, I do concede that this kind of, the paternal kind of structure, you know, because you, you could easily come Catherine wheels spinning off into the nuclear family and, the, you know, it's like, you just reminded me of another one that I really like, actually, that it, the whole thing is just um, Kramer versus Kramer if the dad, you know, had complete autonomy, you know. <laughs> like, that is his nightmare. It's Ted Kramer's nightmare for the show. It's like, that's what he wants to do. Um, so things like that, you know, that, that was certainly a societal thing that was being discussed and thought about and, and, and playing out in, in media and in society at large during the kind of mid to late 70s through to the 80s when The Shining was being kind of, you know, formed, I guess, in, in Kubrick's mind and his adaptation of it. So if those things are present, well, they are present, yeah, I think you can't deny that, that there's definitely familial structures dissolving, corrupting, corrosive, um, and for me, but you know, I see a lot. Again, this might just be my viewpoint, but I see a lot more kind of abuse within it than I do see this kind of authoritarian stuff. I think it's almost like Jack wants authority, but he hasn't got it. You know, and I think you're right to sort of, you know, in all of his other films, Kubrick was obsessed with authority. It wasn't necessarily, it wasn't always directed in the fact that he. You know, he, I mean, he tried to undermine authority every opportunity he got, I think, within his films. Um, and, and it plays out in very different ways and, and, and to very different consequences in a lot of his films. But authority is definitely a theme amongst his work. So, again, I can see where that would come from and seeing it in his kind of catalogue. I feel like I'm rambling there or something. No, no. I, there are two <laughs> things I want to come in on. I mean, for me, it's part of the trilogy of films about um, autobiography that are very autobiographical that starts with Barry Lyndon, The Shining, and then ends in Eyes Wide Shut, that, that Barry Lyndon's his first really autobiographical film, then, then The Shining even more so, and then the most is Eyes Wide Shut. And, and those are films about families and fatherhood. And and the other thing that you said that really struck me, and I think this is, you know, how, how I've come to see it, is, is Jack is a, a kind of picture of barely suppressed masculine rage privilege and entitlement and that's really it's it's not the hotel getting in his head he wants to write this book and as he sees it wendy and danny uh, and particularly wendy are stopping him from doing it and there's that speech where he talks about his responsibilities and he mentions the word about five or six times and so that that's how i um re read the film um rather than being i mean it's all entirely psychological for me yeah, um, I, I yeah, I would agree and, with that. And, and 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 it's it's about that. You know, you can really see the anger. You know, I can't remember the exact words, but even if you know, when I if you hear me typing, even when you don't hear me typing, don't come in. Yeah, I mean that exercises in authority is right there, isn't it? I mean, I see a lot of 
you know, patriarchy in a lot of what he's saying as well. Um, but I think what you picking up on what you said there, I think that that a little part of that is 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 a, is a point of contention between Kubrick and King, isn't it? I think the fact that Kubrick wanted all of that rage to be bubbling under the surface, really, really palatable, and him arriving at this place almost pre you know pre ready pre made for this thing to kick off because he was all, he was at the limit. Whereas King saw his as a sort of much more of a, a corrosion of the of the fire figure that, that opposed to Kubrick. So I think that is is one of the many kind of initial you know points of divergence that the two had on it. Um, is is Jack himself, and is is it is it his authority, or is it his breakdown, or is it his own point of view, or is it the points of view as others are pressed onto him that make him do all this? All of that stuff, I think, is all in there between them two. And obviously, Stephen King takes every opportunity he can to sort of have that argument or raise that argument with people. But yeah, it's really interesting. I think. Yeah, very interesting that film sustains this level of analysis. We've probably gone for hours and hours. You know, there was a whole podcast. Yeah. Um, did you come across that one? I'm sure you did. Um, um, there was a room to. Um, it was The Shining dissected at two minutes thirty-seven seconds at, at, at a time. So each episode dealt with two minutes and thirty-seven seconds of the film. Um, I do remember that. Yeah, and um, so you know, very interesting. Um, I'm going to ask you a final question um, about the film sort of before we wrap up, which is um, one of the interesting things about your, your book and um, what you've talked about is, do you want to just say a little bit about how this has influenced wider artistic practices and beyond cinema and how you included some of that in, in, in the book? In terms of the cultural kind of yeah. people weighing in on it? Yeah, uh, uh, Cozy Van Tutu um, um, and The Daydreaming with Stanley Kubrick, beyond just Room 237 or the podcast or other movies, other artistic practices that aren't film? So, I mean, the, the, culture, the cultural people, the contributors that weighed in on this film were all looked at and kind of discussed and debated for very different reasons, uh, each, each within their own right, really. There was a conscious choice on our part to not to have a different point of view on the film. Um, and when I say a different point of view, I mean a non-white male academic point of view, largely dominating this, which I think it's fair to say domin- dominates all of Kubrick's analysis across a lot of his films. There's, and that might be a reflection of the film himself, but I think that's a different discussion altogether. But I was conscious that I wanted to have people from lesser discussed areas or places where the film is lesser discussed that we we know kind of about. So I wanted to invite a lot of women to discuss this, to see what their views were on it. I wanted to invite people that weren't necessarily in film to discuss that. I wanted people um, that might be from the LGBTQ community to discuss this and how they read the film and what it says to, to them, given their own experiences and whatever else. So that was an initial kind of idea of those things. And then it was more about like trying to pull those things through. So when we talk, when we spoke to people uh, like Cozy, um, it was it was a kind of twofold thing, really. She, obviously, her music and her art is, is incredibly powerful and incredibly great. But and I really was keen to know how she how she felt about 
not only the, the music that Kubrick used throughout the film and how he uses sound, um, because I think the sound, not necessarily the music, making a distinction there is very, very interesting and layered within The Shining and how it's used is very, very interesting. So I really wanted to speak to someone with that kind of background and that interest, which I know that Cozy has and uses within her own practice. But I also wanted to sort of pull out some strings and, and platform Cozy to talk about how she had faced domestic violence and domestic abuse and reading the film in that kind of sense when someone has, has unfortunately experienced that, what that does to a viewing of the film and gain some insight on that um, and what that does. And I think you're also you know, feeding into that the things that they haven't come to light because they've always been there. It was with you know, the, the whole treatment of Shelley Duvall throughout the film, as contentious as that is, and the arguments that are made for that. Whether that did have to happen, you know, in the, in the light of where we are now, I think it's only fair to reappraise that kind of behaviour. And I wanted to have that discussion within there. I also wanted to give a lot more airtime to Wendy as a character because I feel like she's overlooked. Now, the film is ultimately about a male monster. Um, and I think that's the lens that Kubrick shone on it. And that was his kind of direction to travel for it. But the fact that Shelley Duvall's performance was largely wrote off, I, I feel is, is a mistake. I feel like she's brilliant. And I feel like she, without her in it, I think it is a very, very much lesser film. So we wanted to pull that thread out there. But put, you know, what this did to other people, how they sort of use stuff. Like I remember Cozy talking about the trike moment where they where Danny's circling and he's going over the rug, and then he's on the wood, and then he's on the rug again, and then he's on the wood, and that kind of sonic rhythm that happens. She even she talked really interestingly about how adults hear music compared to how kids hear music, and how kids hear music, they almost because they're closer to the ground. That, that sound would have really physically been in his head and what that then does to you and your audio perception and how that then makes her feel about music is, is really kind of interesting from a tiny, tiny part of the film springs this kind of breeding ground for another idea. And James Lavelle, of course, from Uncle, um, he has been a long-time Kubrick fan. He has put on shows, Daydream with Stanley Kubrick, which was at Somerset House in London where he pulled people from visual arts disciplines to sort of respond to Kubrick's catalogue. His love of Kubrick came from kind of the, the band films, really, you know, Clockwork Orange that he couldn't get hold of uh, when he was growing up, and it only sort of circulated on the kind of video nasty circuit, really. Um, but having that kind of sensibility that he had of the music that he chose or the, the way he manipulated with Wendy Carlos in that film in particular, and that sort of combined his kind of love of visual culture, of of kind of future thinking, but also of music. And that has really shaped and been a big part of his career that he's made it. So speaking to James was really, really, really interesting that way he pulled all those kinds of references from where they still to this day continue to inspire him. You know, he, he still records uh, on the Cubic estate. Um, they had a sort of sound set up there. So... All of these things are really interesting to me, and I think it's it's important to give a rounded kind of platform to people from visual arts. Like Gavin Turk as well, is a, is a visual artist, you know, uh, uses a lot of surrealist motifs in his work. He made an actual sculpture called The Shine, which was a, a replica of the, of the maze that he made out of mirrors. And I was really interested to talk to Gavin about not only that, obviously, but also like why surrealist motifs, why the uncanny as a surrealist motif. 
was interested in his work and how he responds to the shining itself in order to just sort of hear a different voice and hear a different take on it and, and give over that kind of microphone to someone that wouldn't necessarily have it within that kind of academic, largely academic world of um, film criticism. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with these books. It's not that we're trying to, you know, write the definitive academic criticism on The Shining. It's it's much lesser than that. It's much more accessible than that. It's much more fun than that. I mean, it's about just offering some different voices on something and making it a bit more accessible so that in the hope that people can maybe look at film the next time they watch it in a different way or, or learn something about something that they really love in culture, from culture, and realise that it actually might have its genesis in this film that's over here that they might never have seen before. I'm still shocked. I do a lot of teaching, and when I'm, I'm still shocked when younger generations coming through haven't seen it. Um, they, they know of it, but they, they've never seen it. And then I talk, do this whole talk about the book and I think, well, all of this is largely going to get, going to miss the mark. But because of the way it's been structured, and because that we pulled in different disciplines, and because the films had such a, an enormous cultural impact, it does actually resonate, and it does actually pull those things in. And it's like a circle, really. It's just it depends on where your point of entry is to it. Whether it's the film coming in one way, and then hopefully by reading this book, you suddenly start to listen to a Cozy Fanny Tutti album, or you go and you know look at some Gavin Turp artwork. It could be the other way around. You could be a real big fan of Gavin Turk and you could suddenly start to watch The Shining for the first time. I think that's what this book is about, really. It's about a cultural appreciation. Much like I said right at the very beginning, that film doesn't exist in a vacuum. It, it, it draws upon and celebrates almost all creative art forms, be that fashion in costume design, be that makeup, be that graphic design, be that production design, be that music you know, be that the visual arts, what they show within the film, what they choose for an artist to represent, all of that stuff is there. But instead of taking the film to look at that stuff, let's turn that around and use that stuff to look at the film. So it's been enormous, but I have to say that They Live was as much as a kind of pleasure as well, and looking at the references that came into that or came after that with Shepard Fairey's work and Old Bay and Slavo Zizek's philosophy and control and ideology and all those things. That, that if you look hard enough at films, just the films that you love, not necessarily films that are worthy, you know, in inverted commas for, you know, criticism, but all films have things that they draw upon and that they build upon and then they, that they then go on to impact culturally. And I think if you, if you kind of switch onto that through the book, film just suddenly blows wide open for you. Well, yeah, and um, well, it's been fascinating, and um, it's well worth um, checking out the shining of visual and cultural haunting, and, and, and that, that really gives you the materials um, to think about the film with, in addition to the film. Um, thank, thanks a lot, Craig. I mean, we've taken up quite a bit of your time today, but before we go, could you just tell us what you're working on now? Um, I'm we're currently trying to decide which of the next fifteen editions we're going to do. Um, there's a big big contingent in Rough Trade Books HQ and Austin Attack of Beetlejuice. Um, I'm still hoping that we get to do Mandy. <laughs> so it'll be one of either those two or many others. Um, so we're, we're still looking for the next one at the moment. Uh, well, when when that's ready um, and, and published, it'd be great to have you back on to uh, talk about that. 
and I look forward to seeing what form it comes in. <laughs> right, thanks very much, Craig.